listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 18, where the Incredible Hulk arrives to hang out with Daredevil in New York. And by hang out, I mean smash stuff. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am J. David Weeder, and since we're all friends here, you can call me Dave. This is episode 18, which means the show should be able to vote. Okay, maybe it doesn't work like that, but we're still trucking along. After last week's geographical extravaganza, I'm back with less geography. That kind of thing is fun now and then, but this week it's plain old comic books as usual. That should be my new acronym, CBAU, comic books as usual. There we go, now to get the t-shirts made... Now, speaking of comics, you'll probably notice that we are jumping from last week's issue, 161, to issue 163. The reason is simple. Frank Miller didn't draw 162. Steve Ditko did a fill-in. And that issue has Matt losing his memory after being bombarded with radiation from a failing reactor. Matt becomes a boxer and finds himself witnessing a repeat of the scenario where Jack Murdoch was killed and his memory kicks into gear. Outside of the Ditko art, which is excellent as usual, the issue has a script by longtime comic writer Michael Fleischer. It wasn't a bad issue, even if it was a little bit contrived, and Daredevil has a few cool moments, but it's outside of the mandate for the next several episodes, which we are focusing on Frank Miller. And perhaps when I go back to the pick-and-pull approach toward the end of the year, I should throw that on the docket. And to that end... I do want to remind everybody, after the Frank Miller read-through ends, the show will definitely be back to looking at uh, more random assortments of stories. Now, I haven't touched the spreadsheet for 2015 because, I mean, we're only in March. But there's a few ideas that I have down on post-its that are definitely worth exploration. But something new that you might enjoy is a new Tumblr page for this very show. I decided to add the page to feature some images from the books that are being covered that week, as well as some here and there Daredevil bits. So take a look at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com and I have to give a shout out and thanks to Shag and Rob over at the Fire and Water Podcast for inspiring the idea. Now if you're not interested in the Tumblr, um, the images and the links, they're going to be relayed over both the Facebook page for the show and my own Twitter page. So if you, you don't have to sign up for that to get the content. Because I know not everyone likes Tumblr with its supernatural gifts and shipping posts. I don't even know what shipping means. Basically, we're making uh, mental porn. Is that it? I don't know. Anyway, this week's issue, issue 163, is a new semi-two-part story. After Daredevil saved Black Widow from Bullseye, we're kind of picking up a bit later, so not much is needed in the way of recap. We have a nice story break, which won't happen all that often, but I will offer this note. The subplots are back in force. So Heather Glenn will be making her ever-so-triumphant return and Ben Urich is still hot on the case of Daredevil's secret identity. Those are about to come back into play, so be aware of those. Right after this podcast promo, we will be diving into Daredevil number 163, Beware the Hulk.
Well then, uh, Scott, can you do me a favor? What's that? I've got an episode coming. Let's see. It's called Magnus Remembers uh, Superman Returns, so uh, don't listen to that episode. It, this is all kind of, it's all part of my Superman Begins like miniseries that, I, that I'm that uh, i going through, or was going through. This is all part of the uh, lead-up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I've got two little interludes. Uh, the first... Lucy, shut the f*** up! <laughs> Sorry about that, the dog. <laughs> Prentice Magnus punches reality at twotruefreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Prentice Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at twotruefreaks.com. No animals were harmed in the making of this promo. Welcome back from that podcast promo. This week, the Hulk makes his way into the pages of Daredevil. The big, green, angry powerhouse of unlimited strength Hulk. Matt may be out of his league here. Just a little. For a little background on the Hulk, and I'm going to keep it brief because the Hulk is pretty well known, uh, Bruce Banner, not David Banner, was working on a gamma bomb for the U.S. military. On the day of the bomb's test, he spotted a young man driving out to the range and rushed out to get the boy to safety. While Banner ordered that the countdown clock be stopped, a Russian spy named Igor, or Igor, wanted the Gamma plans and conveniently decided to ignore the order. After getting the teenager, Rick Jones, to a safety ditch, Banner was bombarded with intense Gamma rays, which should have killed him. Instead, it imbued him with the rays, and whenever he gets angry or stressed, he metamorphosizes into a giant green rage monster. And the Hulk spent many, many years running from the military, looking for a cure to stop the raging monster that dwelled within him. Hulk also made his way onto the small screen in a TV show that followed a slightly renamed David Banner as he wandered around the U.S. looking for peace and escape from the monster. My theory is that that show is the most likely reason that the Jade Giant shows up in the pages of Daredevil. Remember, the title was kind of limping along. He's doing his bi-monthly thing. Why not infuse it with the guy on lunchboxes and t-shirts? It sales gold. Now to that end, this is kind of a bit of an odd cover to represent that. Because we have a haggard Daredevil standing with his billy club gripped weakly in his hands. And he's standing in an alley... With trash cans, garbage, it's all strewn everywhere, and there's this huge shadow looming behind him. In the foreground, we see the huge green muscled arm and familiar purple shorts of the Incredible Hulk. So, we don't actually see a full shot of the Hulk. I mean, it's effective. It's very effective for comic fans, but not necessarily casual fans of the show. I mean, for comic fans, there are the telltale signs of the Green Giant. Purple pants, impossibly muscular green arm, that distinctive lumbering profile... But if the goal was to boost sales on the book, which, I mean, admittedly, I'm not saying it's supposition, but I'm bringing this from more of an informed hypothesis, basing it on logic, then perhaps they did a smart thing by giving the right crumbs, but not putting the whole cookie in reach. I say this because the Hulk is very large, he's very menacing, and Daredevil looks like he's seen better days. But neither is really a central figure. 
Daredevil stands slightly to the cover's left-hand side, and he's obscured by the smothering presence of the Hulk. And the Hulk gets closest to being a center figure, where the eye is naturally drawn, but that is by way of his shadow, so he's not upstaging Daredevil in his own book. And this also creates a bit of an unbalanced image, which may throw many people, but it serves to show the chaos of a fight between these two. And I mentioned that Daredevil looks roughed up, and he does. But looking closer, this is achieved by the slightly crumpled pose. The cover doesn't depict him with bruises, rips in his costume, anything like that, or even the standard telltale trickle of blood from the corner of his mouth. Miller adds some well-placed but very natural shadows and detail lines to make us believe Daredevil has gone a few rounds, and he replaces the graceful, stoic superhero pose with a hunched-over, shoulders-drooped Daredevil, exhibiting some exhaustion. It's just done through body language on the character, and feats like this are amazing, but it completely supplants the comic's code, because there's no blood, there's no violence, yet it's effectively telling a story at a glance. But the story itself is entitled Blind Alley, written by Roger McKenzie once again, Frank Miller's penciling, this time inked by both Joseph Rubenstein and Klaus Janssen, lettered by James Novak, colored by Glennis Ween, and it goes thus. At a high-priced fundraiser for the re-election of District Attorney Blake Tower, somebody reads a paper announcing that the Hulk has been spotted in Manhattan. Matt argues with Judge Coffin about previously representing the Hulk, when the judge gets a little snarky. And no, Matt doesn't put him in his place, though he should. Crotchety old fart. Also at the party, our old friend Heather Glenn, who has a new man on her arm. Rico! Who knows all the disco moves. Well, the noise and the confusion of the party mixed with Heather's disco-dancing new man drive Matt out to the balcony, where Matt spots the distinctive telltale heartbeat of the Hulk nearby. Matt sends Foggy into the party to fetch a drink for him and then leaps off the balcony to try and stop a potential Hulk rampage on the streets of New York. And it doesn't take Matt long to find a giant green guy lumbering in an alleyway. The Hulk initially bristles at Matt's attempts to reach Dr. Bruce Banner within and it looks like our horned hero is about to get smushed when the Hulk has a moment of clarity, as alcoholics call it. And the Jade Giant sits down and slowly reverts back to Bruce Banner who asks... Why did I do this to myself before passing out? Now, it's interesting to note that this story kind of fits in a really nebulous place for the Hulk's continuity. Because over in his own ongoing at this stage, he had just suffered the loss of his otherworldly love, Jorella. In fact, the issue of The Incredible Hulk that hit stands the same month as Daredevil 163 involves Hulk fighting Major Talbot to get her corpse back. Which is morbid, but Captain Marvel's also in the middle. Not Shazam, Marvel. And the following issues of the comic would follow Hulk to back to the microscopic world called Kai, or just Kai, and then lead to a scuffle with the Silver Surfer. Now I mention this because this issue of Daredevil kind of follows the template of the TV show, albeit from the opposite perspective. On the show, David Banner wanders into a town to find a place to hide and ends up getting involved with the local problems, whatever they may be. And Hulk ends up solving those problems, leading Banner to move on because he's got to keep his secret. With Daredevil 163, instead of following Banner, we already arrive at the destination with the locals. And the story unfolds, so we have Banner coming into the situation rather than vice versa. So this issue feels more like a TV tie-in than the Hulk's own comic. Now truthfully, I kind of like that. I like that the Hulk comic was allowed to remain itself, despite the potential boost in sales from following the TV show format. And it didn't completely short throw that out the window, but 
You know, if readers stop by from the show, they're going to find their way into some more standard, straightforward Hulk tales, and hopefully hop on board for the ride. Now, McKenzie seems to have another approach in mind altogether. He bets on the reading audience knowing the basic premise of the Hulk from the show, which allows the story to kind of begin right of way. Now, a copy of the Daily Bugle showing that the Hulk is in town suffices for us. And then, I mean, we're at a fundraiser for the same DA that succeeded Foggy and the one that commended Daredevil in issue 131. Blake Tower. Yes, I'm going to say it like that every time. Blake Tower sounds like a fancy apartment building. You know, didn't the Jeffersons live at a place called Blake Tower? Oh, no, no, no. That's actually Park Lane Towers. And yes, I looked that up, but I wasn't going to waste a good joke. I mean, we're at a party, right? Also in attendance and making cameos is Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, who is a bit low-key and quiet in his one-panel appearance, and J. Jonah Jameson, editor and publisher of The Daily Bugle, who is going on like he's Rick James about how progressive The Bugle is as a newspaper. What we don't see is that off-panel, Jonah slaps Tony and licks the side of his date's face. It's a celebration! Right behind him, in the party animal department, is Foggy, who is telling what I assume to be an off-color joke about a priest and a rabbi to an actual priest. Awkward. And Judge Coffin returns to basically berate Matt for once defending the Hulk. This brings three points to mind. One, Mackenzie clearly wanted to do something with Coffin. But, spoilers, none of that really comes to pass. Two, Matt's compassion is on display here. For all of the myriad of writers, artists, creative types that really touched on Daredevil through the years, the one good thing that I like that they've retained is Matt's a generally a good, caring individual. Unless he's possessed by a demon, but the less said on that, the better. And if you've got a good guy sort of character, you kind of want that compassion in there somewhere, or else what kind of character is he? He's bent on vengeance. He's not a hero. He's an anti-hero. And my third point is Matt defended the Hulk in Incredible Hulk issues 152 and 153 when General Ross finally captured the Jade Giant. Matt was called to defend the Hulk for all of the rampaging he had done, which led to a nice scene that parallels this issue. On a plane with the sedated Bruce Banner, that's right, they put Bruce Banner on a plane. Of course you're going to sedate him. Unfortunately, Matt demands that his client receive fair treatment. He wants to talk to Bruce, so he has the puny scientist revived. And of course, Bruce freaks out, turns into the Hulk, but Matt is able to talk to the Hulk and makes Hulk realize that he is his friend and explains that hulking out at 40,000 feet is a bad, bad plan. So we see the Hulk and Matt become friends. They become allies to some extent, which is why the Hulk responds well to Matt here. And just a little note, that particular trial ended with, well, the Hulk freaking out, escaping, perhaps with the help of Reed Richards. Those two issues are actually pretty good. I do recommend them. That's Incredible Hulk 152 and 153. And looking forward to the future, Mark Wade also picks up on the friendship of Matt Murdock and the Hulk and makes it really work, which is excellent because he's writing both characters and it's a nice echo from this story, which is a nice echo from the previous story. It's a consistent thing, and I dig that. Now, to underline my point about Matt being uh, compassionate and a caring person, he started with the Hulk by reasoning with the monster, both in that original story and here. And it's even despite the previous trial going badly, he's using that same tactic. There are a few tidbits before we move on, such as Rico. He's a disco man. I mean, seriously, big collar, open shirt, medallion. Come on, Heather, you really bagged yourself a winner. From lawyer and superhero to a Bee Gees devotee. Oh, well done. Way to knock it right out of the park. Rico! Sorry, I have to get that jab in because we're never going to see Rico again. Would would you miss him? And in fairness, um, I have to admit, Matt's in a tux that has a ruffled pirate shirt front. 
So not everybody is innocent in this little fashion debacle. Also, after an awesome leap from the balcony, when Matt does come face-to-face with the Hulk, the Hulk is huge in Matt's radar vision. The radar vision somehow enhances the Hulk's already huge size. Wow, that came out wrong. But somehow, just the outline itself is a little bit more intimidating. And yet, when we see Miller's Hulk, he looks off. Not bad. Not off-model or anything, but just odd. And maybe it's the arched lips that Miller uses. I think the Hulk's face just looks a bit too human which is an odd sentence to utter, but Hulk is supposed to be a monster. He's supposed to look a little Cro-Magnon, right? But, you know, it's a light complaint. This is Daredevil's comic. Matt looks awesome, even with a pirate shirt on his tux. So let's get back to the story now that the Hulk has calmed down and Banner is in control. Bruce wakes up confused. Matt has taken the scientist back to his brownstone to recover from his Hulk out. Matt and Bruce have a little heart-to-heart about missing things when you're on the run, like a cup of coffee. And Matt tries to convince Bruce to help him get the scientist back in the authorities' good graces to try to come to terms with this, but Banner feels that's impossible. And he plans to head out, now that he's back in control. So Matt gives Bruce some clothes and some cash as the doctor heads out, and of course things get ugly, as Bruce gets on the subway, which is massively overcrowded. A shoving match ensues when Bruce asks the guy to turn down his radio, and the train car turns into chaos. Of course, Bruce loses control and hulks out, and Hulk rips his way out of the car through the pavement of the street above to wreak havoc on the streets of New York. And in a nearby taxi, Matt hears the screaming and the crunching of metal and crunching of concrete and hops out of the cab to suit up as Daredevil and face down the Hulk. You know, I gotta say, Miller's Bruce Banner looks mildly off-model, a little bit like Bixby with the feathered hair. But again, we get more of Matt, the all-around good guy, helping Bruce out with some money and some clothes. And the clothes look to be the same outfit that Matt was wearing when he pulled the Matches Malone act at Josie's Bar in issue 160. The coloring is different, but it's the same design on the jacket, same hat. And somehow the pants have conveniently become purple, which I've learned to accept at this stage. And you know, it really is odd what comics can condition us to accept, especially longtime fans who've been reading from, you know, childhood. We accept that purple pants are abundantly available. Nobody notices that Spider-Man and Peter Parker have the same injured arm. Even things like death become kind of malleable after a while. There will always be that small part of a comic fan that confronts death with just a tinge of skepticism, like maybe the deceased will come back in some crossover down the road. And we accept things like Matt having a pair of purple pants and Bruce fitting into them easily because it makes the story move. I mean, at this point, if you were reading The Hulk, if you're a Hulk fan, you don't second-guess the purple pants, even though... Pretty much any store from Walmart level to Macy's beyond, you might, and this is a big, big might, find one pair of purple pants. And we're not talking about, like, sweatpants. Those you can kind of find, but there was a theory that was tossed around, and I kind of accept it for my own sanity as kind of a valuable no-prize answer to this quandary, if you're one to overthink these things like I am. And the theory goes that the burst of gamma radiation that comes with the transformation is so powerful, it turns whatever fabric Bruce is wearing purple. It would be something kind of like acids on litmus paper. Or at least a very tenuously similar thought process, I guess. So whether it's just accepting that the 616 universe is abundant with purple pants, or that a burst of radiation makes them purple, we can buy into the idea that Bruce Banner is constantly clad in the color of passion and royalty purple. You know what is hard to accept though? The idea that Bruce Banner 
Who is a rocket scientist? A literal rocket scientist. One of the greatest minds on the planet. And that's from the lips of Tony Stark and Reed Richards. He decides to get on a subway in New York City. I mean, they even made a joke about this in the 2008 Ed Norton Hulk movie. Remember, me enclosed in a metal tube in the most aggressive city in the world? Okay, we'll take a cab. Why would Bruce not see the flaw in this logic? I mean, if you have anger management issues, especially on the level that Bruce does, you may want to avoid crowds or enclosed spaces or both. So, of course, it goes badly. Of course, we need to get a full-on Daredevil to Hulk clash. We know this, but it feels odd. If we wanted to get these two face-to-face, -face, we had the open window in the first act of the book. And this is where the plot kind of grinds the gears a bit, and it downshifts at the wrong time. It misses the clutch. Now, granted, I'm glad we got a transformation scene. I've always been fascinated with those, and this one's actually pretty special to me. Bruce's face is half uh, green and demented scowl is on it. What we are seeing here is basically that the issue is vamping for time. Now, don't get me wrong, but I'm going to kind of contradict myself a little bit. The pacing is way off. I stand by that. But by having the moments we've had before, it sets up something good on the emotional front. And we also get this great, awesome three-panel sequence of Matt running, straightening the curved edge of the cane with the button, doing the Clark Kent-style shirt rip. Even though there's probably a better way to do this... It leads to a clash that could have happened earlier, but now we have a layer of sad seasoning layered on that. So let's take a look at the rest of the story real quick. The fight with the Hulk goes about as well as you would expect. Daredevil basically acts as a distraction and a punching bag. Matt will hit the Hulk with a flurry of blows and they get thrown around like a rag doll. And a crowd is gathered watching this, not helping, but watching this. And in that crowd is Heather Glenn and Ben Urich standing quite a bit closer to each other than I would prefer, because in the excitement, Heather calls out for Matt, using his real name in front of Ben, confirming Yurik's suspicions. The Hulk has Daredevil cornered in an alley, with Daredevil badly hurt and trying once again to reach Bruce Banner inside of the monster. With Hulk poised to crush Matt with a huge slab of concrete, Matt tries to reason with his force of nature, and it actually works. The Hulk backs off, puts the concrete down, and leaps away with a look on his face and a bellow that sounds like he lost his only friend. EMTs rush to the alley to find the crumpled form of Daredevil and begin treating his wounds. And later, Yurik sits at home, typing a story. A story that will expose Matt Murdock as Daredevil, which could be bad if Matt you know, survives the ordeal, and the issue ends. Man, what a cliffhanger. You know, Matt almost has the Hulk talked down again. And this wasn't in the synopsis, and I apologize. We're almost treated to a moment where the rational is about to prevail, and then a panicked cop shoots the Hulk in the head. Not that it even pierces the skin of the Hulk, but the Hulk gets back in fighting for him, and he's pissed off, and shit gets real. Let's kind of be honest about this. For all of his skills, Matt is way out of his league fighting the Hulk. And I say that with the full realization that Matt has clashed with Submariner Thor and many more. But the Hulk is a different ballpark, in a different city, a different state, whole other sport. I mean, Hulk is fast, the madder he gets, the stronger he gets. He's also more crafty than he would seem. And Matt, you know, he's in red. He's easy to spot. I mean, if this was a bullfight, Matt wouldn't even be the matador, he'd be the cape. And this plays like a pathetic Tom and Jerry cartoon. I mean, really... Daredevil actually gets thrown around like a ragdoll. I don't use that term lightly. I mean, he, he gets some blows in, but they're not going to do jack squat. He might as well be kicking a brick wall, but he's just trying to distract the Hulk and try to get into his head. At one point, the Hulk throws Daredevil. The man without fear hits a wall and does the wily e. Coyote slide down it. 
Again, I mean, Matt's getting some good moves in. I mean, he hits the Hulk with a bus. He drives a bus into the Hulk. And that even hurts Daredevil more than it hurts the Hulk, because Daredevil goes through the windshield. And while Matt's getting trounced around on the battlefront, good old Heather is making things even worse by saying his real name, not once, but twice, right in front of Ben Urich. Now I know, Ben has it figured out already. Heather doesn't know Ben from Adam. Let me also add that there are news cameras nearby. There's a crowd. She's standing in a crowd of people watching Daredevil get a beatdown, and she reacts by blurting out his name. Well done. Well done. I hope she didn't accidentally blurt out Matt's name with Rico, because, you know, that would be really awkward. So Heather put the final fatal bullet in the gun aimed right at the secret identity of Matt Murdock right after smashing his manhood to bits by showing off Rico. Not a high spot for her, but I'm not going to go on another Heather Glenn rant. You are welcome. I'm also not going to gripe about the crowd simply watching the Hulk beat Daredevil. I'll make a small snide remark, as you saw, but what are they going to do? It's the Hulk. They might as well be watching a hurricane. You can't fight a hurricane, and you can't fight the Hulk. However, I do want to comment on the emotional impact of the climax. I mean, the Hulk is about to crush Daredevil, and Matt manages to get through again, and the Hulk gets it. And the entire reason this works is because Matt helped Bruce. He's a friend of both Hulk and Bruce, and the Hulk realizes that he's being a dick. The biggest impact that this issue had on me from that initial read was the shot of the Hulk sadly leaping away as if he had lost his only friend. The Hulk really comprehends what he's done, and who he has done it to. He didn't just beat up the man in the stupid red costume, he beat up his buddy and for no reason. It wasn't Daredevil who shot him in the head. And Daredevil was only taking defensive tactics for the most part, bus notwithstanding. The heartbreak in that single shot is palpable. It's like a child realizing that they have broken their favorite toy during a temper tantrum. I mean, it's good storytelling from a conceptual point and an art point. However, the overall movement of the issue still stumbles. The pacing is off. We have a slow build opening, which is fine. And then we move to a confrontation, which is kind of Matt talking the Hulk down. No excitement. But so far, so fine in the pacing department. Even the interaction between Matt and Bruce is light and short, and we suddenly are back in the same face-off scenario. So let me posit this. Would it have been better for Matt to find a disheveled, confused Bruce Banner and save the Hulk Daredevil face-off for later in the issue? I know this is kind of a small gripe. I know this, and I don't think it's invalid, though. We definitely see McKenzie try to get our attention, but he missed a fundamental piece of the Hulk. Bruce Banner. Matt and Bruce needed just a bit more time, maybe a bit more on the line. I mean, if Matt had managed to convince Bruce to try to work things out with the authorities, and we saw the beginnings of that, only to have the Hulk rip it away. That is some heartbreak, and heartbreak is the story of the Hulk. Let me illustrate that point with this. Because I did this with Captain America, I want to do my list of five things that I love about the Hulk. Let me begin with number five. I love the dichotomy between the puny and brilliant Bruce Banner to the massive, mindless rage and strength of the Hulk. Most comic heroes have some sort of resemblance or connection to their counterparts. I mean, Peter Parker's still a smartass, Clark Kent is still an intelligent, successful reporter. Even Matt is a shrewd opponent in the courtroom. But the Hulk and Bruce Banner are polar opposites. I mean, they're inverted images of each other and at odds with one another. And that is some heavy stuff. That's potential storytelling gold. Number four, most of his main antagonists are related to Hulk in some way, and I don't necessarily mean familiar, though that's a part of it. I mean, General Ross, who's been hounding the Hulk from the beginning, became his father-in-law. 
the Abomination became a monster by way of Hulk's old gamma machine that he used to change himself. General Talbot works with him. He's trying to bang the Hulk's girl, Betty Ross. Even the leader has a tenuous connection in that he was also changed by a similar accident with gamma rays, but with an opposite effect. Most of the main enemies in the Hulk's pantheon come by way of his own supporting cast or by way of Hulk as a response to the Hulk, I guess would be a better way to say that. So it shows that this Jade Giant has a huge devastating ripple effect and generally is the center of his own stories. The number three thing I love about the Hulk, the Hulk and Rick Jones and their bromance. I mean, these two have been connected from the onset, and Rick's feelings of responsibility to the Hulk are very relatable. I mean, if he hadn't driven out to that testing range, no Hulk, no ruined life for Banner. Likewise, Bruce sees an orphan with this heart of gold and finds the one person he can count on as both Bruce and the Hulk. The number two thing I love about the Hulk, the childlike nature of the Savage Hulk. I mean, sure, he's angry. Sure, he smashes stuff. But he has this sort of odd innocence in his quieter moments. And if he's all alone, he's just as likely to pet a deer or sniff a flower as he is to pull a tree up from the ground. Remove the army always hounding him, and the Hulk just wants some peace and quiet for a good nap. And that, I mean, anybody can relate to. Who doesn't love a good nap? And the number one thing that I love about the Hulk, he's not a clear-cut hero, he's not a clear-cut villain, he doesn't fit into that realm. He's neither, he's both. He causes destruction, but in that path, he beats up supervillains. He's angry, but most of the time, it's at the right people. Hulk is not a traditional comic hero, especially in terms of what Marvel was creating when he came into the equation. And that makes him interesting. He's complex. He's very oddly human. He's a cautionary tale. And overall, the most important thing is, the Hulk is a tragedy. To bring that back to the issue at hand, the Hulk is the original Walking Dead comic. As soon as things are going well, you know something's going to come along and just completely f*** it up for Banner. Which is what we see here in this small dose. But it could have been an excellent stage for some really hammering, heart-wrenching stories. I mean, Matt has a plan to make things work for Bruce, to really get him into a place where he can live his life again, and then we watch it get ruined in one fell swoop. Now sure, that's in the story, but how much more could it have been? How much clearer could it have been? As far as what we got, you know, it has great moments, but mostly in the second half of the issue, and Daredevil is poised right. He's trying his hardest to help the Hulk and by proxy the property and people around the monster. But Matt is trying to bring out the good in Bruce and see the potential to tame the monster and allow Banner to be free or at least learn to live with the Hulk. Learn to be functional again. And that's what Daredevil is fighting relentlessly to save. Banner. Bruce Banner. Now, admittedly, the issue is an emotional powerhouse. But it takes a few reads to really get the punch in the feels that, that this is doing. It's not clear it's not on Front Street. Because in a lot of ways, Matt sees this cracked, distorted image of himself. Because both he and Bruce were defined by freak accidents, both involving radiation but Matt learned to control and focus his gift, while Bruce's results were a lot more catastrophic. In a way, he's not only fighting for Bruce, but for the Matt Murdock that could have easily shared a similar affliction. It's a very potent idea, and I mean, the issue is marred by its pacing and lack, it doesn't quite reach its potential, but maybe that's my own expectations. But in the end, it's satisfying, and it has been one of those reads that when I read it in the Mark for Death trade, it's haunted me for years. And if you're interested in reading this issue for yourself, it is reprinted in the aforementioned Daredevil Marked for Death trade paperback. 
It is also in Marvel Superheroes Magazine number four, Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume One, Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus Hardcover, and of course Marvel Digital and Digital Unlimited. And now we move out of the comic book into your words as I take a look at your emails and correspondence to the show. Straight from your keyboard to the show's inbox. It's emails. All right, our first email is from Mr. Jared Cardos making a return appearance with an email with a subject line episode number 16 slash 17. And Jared writes, in 160, when you talk about Miller's rectangles as tools of isolation for Matt, in that panel, I don't know if I miss you mentioning it, but if you combine the two sofas near Matt with the extreme close-up of an adjacent table, it almost looks like he's in a small prison cell. Yeah, I know that later on, Wade does some more serious stuff like bringing back Mila and what happens to Foggy, but I think I just felt like it wasn't living up to the hype at the time. With the crossover thing, I know it was continuing in Wade's run, but it felt like the crossover was leading to a climax of that run, only to go nope at the end, only for it to really resolve in the first few pages of the next regular issue, which felt very dissatisfying. At least that's my recollection. Kudos for finding Josie's bar, that is some dedication there. Good episodes, continuing to enjoy the look at this run. Alright, Jared, I did make note of the sectional couch making a uh, making it a bit of a prison with a myriad of rectangles. I don't think I said it specifically as you did, so I, I apologize for that. I do want to say, I wasn't calling you out on the mega crime crossover thing. I wasn't calling you wrong. I was just trying to give a little bit of a different perspective, which which you've done for me. I can see where the, the crossover felt like it would have been the logical conclusion, but that element ties into Lade's long game on the book. I mean, to be honest with you, the first 27 issues were all leading to something, and even when it didn't feel like it, it was still going to an overall narrative for the first two years and change of the run. But I can see where, you know, naturally a crossover kind of coming to that bit of a climax would have made sense. So I didn't think about it from that point of view, because, I mean, I was on the other side of the coin. I was actually a bit frustrated with the crossover itself, because I was reading Daredevil in print, and that meant tracking down other books. Never let it be said that I am not cheap. I am frugal. I prefer the term frugal, but cheap is thrown around a little bit. So I think we can all agree crossovers can be a pain, but I can see your point. My point was, you know, I was reading along Daredevil. I didn't really necessarily care what was going on in Punisher. I didn't know what was going on with Avenging Spider-Man. So I was kind of glad it did at least conclude in the book it started in. By the way, Jared, I'm glad you wrote back... Uh, it brought something back to my memory. I forgot to mention something from your last email. You were asking why I wasn't covering the Frank Miller drawn issues of Spectacular Spider-Man, and the simple answer is space. I mean, I have 52 episodes a year, and if I were doing this read-through in 2015, they would have made the list. But this year, with it 2014 being the 50th anniversary, I have to make room for that, and the preparations that will come with that, as well as things like Love and War and Electra Lives Again which are things that I really want to cover and talk about. And I also want to do at least one commentary this year, so all of that meant I had to omit some things, and those two issues were the best candidates to to remove because they also play into some ongoing stories over in Spidey's book, and they are Spider-Man-centric. But I definitely appreciate your email. I didn't, um, again, I didn't mean to sound like I was calling you out or, or, or being contradictory to what you were saying about the crossover. And I'm glad that you did bring me another viewpoint about the Wade run and the Mega Crime crossover, so I appreciate that, Jared. Next up is an email from Jeff Gibson, subject line Daredevil, volume 3, number 36. And Jeff writes, hey, did you read number 36 yet? I know it's probably not part of the show, but I wanted to get your thoughts. Keep up the great work, Jeff. Now, I did respond to Jeff, but I wanted to go ahead and put the email in here 
because I want to talk about this because I did read Daredevil number 36 and overall I kind of dug it. Now I'm going to remain spoiler free for this part. So you don't have to reach for the stop button. Um, but overall it felt a bit rushed in wrapping up the ongoing storyline and getting Daredevil poised for his next phase. Which we all know because, I mean, it's in the solicits for the all new Marvel now, Daredevil number one. It's been announced over and over, and I think I've mentioned it here, Daredevil's going to San Francisco. And then the big reveal in that issue was pretty much put everywhere. But I think with that, that reveal, Wade is finally letting go of this long-standing and now irrelevant element to the character. I mean, it was rendered moot almost a decade ago, so I'm, I'm glad to see where we can go with this. It feels like a weight has been lifted off the shoulder of this character. Speaking of the new direction, can I talk a bit about Daredevil Road Warrior? I think I shall, and if you want to avoid spoilers on that, listen no further, because I'm going to do a bit of a mini-review. Road Warrior, the digital comic miniseries linking from the end of Volume 3 to the beginning of Volume 4, has Peter Krause joining Wade. Krause, many may remember, was the artist on the bulk of Power of Shazam, one of my favorite series of all time. And the issue begins, and remember, last shot, spoilers. But it begins with Daredevil fighting Man-Bull in a sewer and winning with a jump straight out of the Fugitive. Then we're hopping on a plane with Kristen McDuffie heading for San Francisco. And as you can imagine, the enclosed space of the plane is miserable. So Matt uses the heartbeats around him to form a symphony in his mind and notices one beat is very off. Due to some turbulence, the plane is forced to land in Milwaukee. And everybody is deboarding when Kristen notices a very shaky, very paranoid looking man. And the man is the source of the offbeat in that heartbeat symphony because he has no heartbeat. Matt senses trouble and chases the man through the airport into a bathroom where he delivers a very strong blow to Matt and then runs right through a wall and escapes. Matt is about to follow when he is detained by police and that is where the chapter ends. So, Digital Comics, Marvel Infinite. Mark Wade was a huge proponent of Digital Comics and how the medium can be furthered by layering panels creating an almost animated experience. Marvel Infinite Comics and DC's equivalent, DC2, take that idea and run with it. I mean, the Guardians of the Galaxy Infinite Comics definitely made solid use of this medium. Road Warrior doesn't rely on those gimmicks as much. Really, there are only two standout sequences that use the sort of moving panel idea. One is the opening, which takes us from pitch darkness to Matt's radar sense being used on Manbull, and then we fade into our normal view. An excellent sequence that takes us really into the head of our hero like never before. And the second sequence takes place on the plane as the angle does sort of a 180 around Matt and shows his environment uh, by way of his radar sense. It immerses the reader in Murdoch world and he manages to make me not want to fly on a plane ever again. But beyond panels and speech balloons appearing, Road Warrior doesn't fall on its laurels. It doesn't fall back on these tricks. Instead, it tells a fairly straightforward story, at least a portion of a story to be more accurate. I mean, we definitely get that nice setup. I'm intrigued. And it was very cool to see some of what Matt sees, quotation marks, in a slightly interactive way, but, and yes, there must always be a but. The price point was kind of like stabbing myself in the knee with an ice pick. $2.99. The same as a regular length print comic or its digital equivalent. I'm not saying that the craftsmanship isn't worth that price. I'm not saying that at all. I quite enjoyed it, but... Most digital first comics run from 99 cents to $1.99 for the enhanced comics, like Batman 66. The reason it bothers me is there's no initial overhead in terms of printing costs, shipping costs, etc. I mean, we're paying the talent, so on and so forth, but logically, shouldn't the download comic be just a bit cheaper? For any losses Marvel has on the digital, they could easily recoup with a print version down the road. Let me give you kind of the equation of what I'm saying here. When the four issue, four, issue sequence is done, 
we will have the story equivalent of about a single print issue, which means the profit from four digital issues could be, you know, added in to the shorter print version of a single issue. It basically would even out. I know, I know. I sound like an old man. In my day, Superman had red briefs. That was the way it was, and we liked it. But still, I mean, this is just simple economics. Big question is, even after plunking down $3 on this issue, do I feel it was worth it? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I can't be upset with Mark Wade. I love the way he writes comics. I love Peter Krause from Power of Shazam. And he kind of provides the artistic missing link between Chris Samney and Frank Miller style. But these two hail from the digital realm of Thrillbent comics. This is why it stands out to me. Thrillbent, which is at thrillbent.com, there's a ton of free material there. And the price point just made me feel like it was... Seeing people come from a hippie commune and become Gordon Gecko. To be clear, this isn't aimed at Wade and Krauss, but more at the bean counters at Marvel who bet on fans of Wade and Daredevil to shell out their hard-earned money. Now bear in mind, I have to admit, they were right. I mean, it was good enough that next week I'm going to be doing the same thing over again. But that's my mini-review, and it's one of the longest, most tangential responses to an email ever. If you're interested in hearing more on the subsequent chapters, let me know by email. And remember to drop a line to the show. You can leave a comment on individual show postings or use the contact form at the show site, daredevilpodcast.com. And please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. It helps the show get a higher profile so others can find it. Or why not share the show postings on Facebook or other social media? Just retweet, share, plus one on Google+, one click can make a difference. But ladies and gentlemen, that is episode 18. Next week, Matt is badly hurt, Ben Yurik has the goods on him, and the fate of Matt's life hangs in the balance. See if Matt can convince Yurik to not share the truth. That is in one week. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week.